today on Ag News Daily. We hear a lot about the, the geological sequestration. The region we're looking at the, for that is in central Illinois. It happens to actually be the same geological uh, formation that, that ADM has been utilizing um, at their Decatur ethanol plant for the better part of uh, 10 years now. Listeners, Tuesday, November 22nd, getting closer to Thanksgiving here on the Ag News Daily Podcast, brought to you today by Mystic Lubricants for a full look. At their full line of products, go to mysticlubes.com. That is M-Y-S-T-I-K, lubes.com. Delaney, are you ready for Thanksgiving, or are you going to make a last-minute trip to the grocery store? I'm so ready, Tanner. Well, I don't know. I, should say, I shouldn't say that I haven't started baking anything yet, so we'll see once we dig into it. <laughs> might have to call the neighbor up for a cup of sugar. That's right. I, I might. You never know. Although we don't have a lot of neighbors, so that might be difficult. Yeah, it might be faster to go to the grocery store is what you're saying? Yes, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. No, that's that's good. Our friends in Nebraska are going to be in the path of some pretty strong winds. Looks like they're going to have relatively low humidity. Nebraska and the states surrounding are going to be really dry, but as they approach Wednesday into Thursday, wind speeds could exceed 30 miles per hour. So this puts them into a red flag warning, Delaney. Hopefully we don't see any new fires started, but they now are at an elevated fire weather risk. So hopefully no turkey frying goes poorly and anything starts firewise on Thanksgiving for our friends in that part of the U.S. Yeah, that wouldn't be ideal, but you do see a lot of turkey fires when people are uh, deep fat frying turkeys and those things are not very safe. No, you make sure you do them in a outdoor environment. It always seems like those bad stories come when somebody tries to do it in their garage or on their deck. So mm-hmm. be Don't far do away from your house. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Tanner, you'll like this piece of news. The world's largest pile of manure. I was going to say the other word, but we can't. We're a PG podcast here. But uh, the world's biggest file was maybe back, they think, in the 1950s to 60s. Now we've got a big steaming pile, multi-story heap of manure large enough to fill a sporting arena, they're saying, in uh, the Sioux City, Iowa area, Tanner. I'm trying really? to see if it says how large this pile of manure is. I don't think it says. It says it's a stone's throw from I-29. Um, it's Oh, I'm sorry. It was started in the 1950s and finished in the That's 1960s. Correct. Yeah. Uh, it's just a bizarre story overall. Yeah, I was trying to catch part of that one yesterday when I saw that article. And uh, it is not a new pile, but now there is a little bit of a scuttlebutt. <laughs> Get it? Mm-hmm. Uh, of who owns this manure and what value it brings. Obviously, as fertilizer prices continue to climb, it can ter- continues to climb in value, this large pile of composted manure. It just, I can't even imagine seeing a pile of manure that large. <laughs> well, right now, it truly probably just looks like a mound of dirt for how long it's aged and composted. So um, I'm sure it does not carry the odor that fresh manure would itself. We did get the harvest progress report again coming out. Soybean harvest wrapped up last week. Just the last 4% of the nation's soybean crop remained in the fields and that was 
completed as of the report that came out Monday. Harvest progress for corn is at 96% harvested as of Sunday, November 20th. That's up three percentage points from the week before and now two points ahead of last year's pace. Wheat development, 87% of the winter wheat has emerged as of Sunday, two points ahead of last year. 85% was that level there as well. One point ahead of the five-year average. Crop conditions put 32% of the crop rated good to excellent, unchanged from the previous week. So probably the last time we'll get one of those crop progress reports for our listeners, as you would expect corn harvest to wrap up here pretty quick. It does sound like a majority of the nation's corn uh, are in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and uh, parts of Wisconsin, and a little bit here along Highway 30 in Iowa, but can't be a whole lot left. No, but we also, Tanner, right alongside that, got reports from Grow Intelligence models yesterday that project final corn yields to be at a 169.8 and a 48.9. If you'll think back to the November WASDE report, we saw corn yields come in at a 172.3 and soybean yields come in at a 50.2. So Grow Intelligence models are actually coming in lower than the USDA November soybean and corn estimates, which could definitely pose um, a little bit of a reason to give the bulls some time to rally. That's right. A little market shifting news there. Let's pause here quick for a message from our partner today. Since 1922, Mystic Lubricants has been providing superior performance and protection for farmers who demand the most out of their equipment. Today, Mystic continues to develop products in real-world conditions that are specially formulated to meet the unique demands of your specialized machines. They provide advanced protection for engine longevity and are the choice of people who make a living working the land. Learn more about Mystic products at mysticlubes.com. That's M-Y-S-T-I-K lubes.com. Millennium Machinery Pete put out his article earlier this morning stating that he sees used equipment pricing showing no signs of slowing down or cooling off. We had reported last week the large uptick in new combine orders as well as the areas of new equipment that have been purchased. He says he's been watching this market go higher and higher by the month for the last 18 months, Machinery Pete says. Now we're coming into the hottest time of year as people look for year-end expensing. It's exactly his quotes. He pointed at three recent sales with mind-boggling results, according to his words. A 1993 Case International 7130 sold for $75,750 out of Emerson, Nebraska. That is the highest sale of a 7130 in over 10 years. The 2010 John Deere 7930 that sold for 170000 out of Waverly, Iowa on November 16th said that was another record high auction price for 7930 John Deere tractors. And then a 2017 John Deere 9570RX, the quad track John Deere, sold for $530,000 at an online auction in South Dakota. That is the highest auction price he has ever seen on a modern farm tractor. So not a collector, but a farm tractor. That was the highest auction price, near new price, Delaney, for that 9570. So used equipment prices, especially on the tractor side, are staying strong. Can I remind me, how much did you report on yesterday? Did we know yesterday that 
four of the 12 voted no on the rail strike? We did the two. We did okay. the top two. Okay, perfect. That's what I thought. I just want to make sure before I jumped into this one. Yep. Well, Tanner, a quick update here on the rail strike story. As of yesterday morning, all 12 unions have now voted, four of which have declined the ratification or have rejected it. So now, Tanner, as you mentioned yesterday on the podcast, we have to have a unanimous majority vote across all unions. Uh, so those who voted no, well, all of them, but especially those who voted no, must now maintain the status quo of operations until Thursday, December 12th. Then on Friday, December 9th, excuse me, Thursday, December 8th. Then on Thursday, Friday, December 9th, union members are eligible to go on strike and or the railroads could lock out workers unless a deal is struck before then. Tanner, here was some interesting backstory, though, that I don't think we've reported on, or I at least had not seen up until this point. Um, but you remember the PEB board, right? P-E-B is what it stood for yeah. there. Well, they apparently made a recommendation to the 12 different union organizations that they accept a deal that would increase wages 24% over the next five years. The railroads proposed a 17% wage increase over five years. And then the unions came back and said, no, we're going to do a 31% increase over five years. So they certainly came in above and beyond what the PEB council recommended, Tanner. And it's not been pretty since then. Yeah, it seemed like there's a lot of other issues and it's easiest just to pinpoint it on wage rather than time off for the work-life balance and improved working conditions and required minimum engineers. There's a lot of things that went into that agreement, but it seems like the easiest one is to just point towards wages. That has certainly been the case. Well, I've got one that's not necessarily ag-related, but caught my eye, so I thought it would be interesting to share. Here's my last piece. Belgium is now stuck with a cocaine berg, as its incinerators cannot keep up with seized drug backlogs. So incinerators now are faced with a mountain of cocaine seized at the port of Antwerp. The backlog of drugs is waiting to be destroyed through the incinerators. But the White Mountain is now being nicknamed a cocaine bird. This requires additional law enforcement and justice officers to keep this pile of illicit substances safe. That pile now is dictated to be worth hundreds of millions of euros and is at jeopardy of being stolen back by criminal gangs. They're urgently looking for other incineration capacity. And the only tie that we have to agriculture in this article, Delaney, is that they have asked farmers with livestock incinerators if they would have interest in allowing them to run cocaine through their incinerator setups. The storage of the batches of seized cocaine is the responsibility of customs. These batches are, of course, closely monitored by police, and they would hope to not have to transfer them, but their incinerator can't keep up. So what an interesting little turn of events to where you make the seizures, but now you got to get rid of it before they steal it right back. That is certainly bizarre, Tanner. Yes, it is. Let's pause one more time for a message from our sponsor before we wrap up for today. Since 1922, Mystic Lubricants has been providing superior performance and protection for farmers who demand the most out of their equipment. 
Today, Mystic continues to develop products in real-world conditions that are specially formulated to meet the unique demands of your specialized machines. They provide advanced protection for engine longevity and are the choice of people who make a living working the land. Learn more about Mystic products at mysticlubes.com. That's M-Y-S-T-I-K lubes.com. Well, Tanner, I think this piece of news is fairly timely since we just talked about this on the podcast yesterday, but Argentina continues to be off to a very slow start, both for corn and soybeans, as they face their third consecutive season of a La Nina pattern. Soybeans were only 17% planted as of last Thursday versus their normal pace, which is typically about 31% planted this time of year, corn at 32% complete as of last Thursday, down sharply compared to a year ago when they were 48% planted for this time. And the planting paces for both crops, Tanner, are the slowest in at least two decades. So certainly going to be watching to see if we do shift into more of an El Nino weather position, because that could drastically change the way that we are able to, or they are able to, I should say, get in and get planted as well as just how the crop develops. But that certainly seems to potentially be enough small market news this morning to push commodities higher in the overnights, Tanner. New crop corn traded a penny and three quarters higher in the overnight to open this morning at 661. New crop soybeans, January soybeans, up a penny and a quarter at 1438. And... Hard red winter wheat will open at 936 in the December contract. Taking a look at the livestock markets tanner and where they closed yesterday. December live cattle will open this morning at a buck fifty-three fifty-five. January feeders will open at a buck eighty-two sixty-two, and December lean hogs will open this morning at eighty-three eighty. Now, Tanner, we teased today's episode a little bit on the podcast yesterday, but today we're going to be talking with Elizabeth Burns-Thompson about the Navigator CO2 pipeline. Well, we continue to see headlines, especially in the home state of Iowa, about the increasing carbon pipelines that are being potentially put up in Iowa. Chatting with Elizabeth Byrne-Thompson, the Vice President of Government and Public Affairs for Navigator CO2 Ventures. Can I call you EBT? Absolutely. Absolutely. You go by that. And I feel like I know you from interacting with you on social and just in some circles, but appreciate you joining us. Give us the 20,000 foot view of where the pipeline is at for you guys at this point in time. Sure. So we are, um, we've, we've, outreach has been a key part of the project from, from start to finish and will continue to be so. Um, right now we are exceptionally focused on working directly with landowners, um, across that project footprint, securing easements. Um, additionally, you know, tied to the, the state level permitting as well. So we filed a permit application in South Dakota. We filed in Illinois. Uh, we very recently filed in Iowa as well. Um, so working through those state-based processes, uh, that unfortunately looks different from state to state. Uh, we are trying to provide some level of uniformity. So folks and landowners are seeing something at a similar point in time from us. Um, but, but in the most recent kind of last couple of months, we just got started, uh, providing landowners with easements. Um, so to date, they hadn't really seen dollars and cents offers from us. They got those here over the last couple of weeks. Um, or I should say a couple of months. 
we know folks are very busy, um, right? We're in the thick of harvest and, and just now kind of getting out of that. So we have seen a, an uptick in, in kind of land and easement track signage. Uh, we anticipate that to continue to be a slow growth as well. So the land easements, I think, as you mentioned, is a newer piece to the puzzle. But I think initially a lot of landowners were concerned that their acreage would be disrupted and that there really wouldn't be a lot of financial incentive for them to participate in the program. Give us a breakdown from a farmer perspective. How does it actually work? Sure. And uh, I, I've, I've had the benefit of, of seeing what that compensation worksheet looks like. Um, and, and the dollars and cents are critically important. Uh, but the language of what's in that easement agreement, right, that contract is also critically important, right? So outlining things like indemnification. So ensuring that the landowner is truly being held harmless, right? We are taking the liability associated with that project. Um, but then walking through all the different facets of compensation, right? So there, there is obviously compensation for the easement itself. Um, we think we're coming forward with something that's, that's pretty competitive, generally at or around, you know, acquisition rate for, for the, the, the track of land that we're working with. Um, on top of that, then there's also payments for crop losses. That's just a necessary part of, of pipeline construction. Uh, we're coming forward with 250% of crop loss up front. So before a shovel goes in the ground, that's that's money in the bank for landowners. Um, we have flexibility in how we do that math, right? So is it is it a rotation? Do we use your yields? Do you use county averages, right? That, that how you do the math is also incredibly important. We've, we've built flexibility so that folks feel like it's fair. And then there's the other kind of last, um, it, folks that see the compensation worksheet will see this uh, kind of catch-all at the bottom, which is any and all other damages, right? So is it um, compensating further where maybe a center pivot can't can't uh, make a full rotation uh, throughout? And so, you know, you compensate for a broader swath of potential crop loss. Um, maybe it's relocation of livestock as we're going across a piece of pasture. Um, you know, we'll go across a lot of tile. So fixing of tile, uh, fixing of terraces, things like that that are unique to the use of the land um, are encompassed in that as well. So there's, there's great opportunity for, for economic, you know, prosperity part of that as well. So with that easement process and the compensation, what sounds like fair from what you're sharing, but is there a period or a couple of crop seasons where potentially that land is out of commission? Yes. So, so, and that's, that's part of the damages, right? That's why um, when you look at how we've built out damages, you know, it's, it's a hundred percent of crop loss in year one. Um, again, we're paying all 250% of that up front. I don't want people to think that, that that's coming out in a prorated fashion. Um, but yeah, it, it would take a, as we go through the construction, uh, we're slated to start construction in the early part of 2024. Uh, you know, that'll be in a phase capacity, but what we effectively do is take that 1300 mile footprint, break it down into about 10 or 12 different sections of 100 to 120 miles. And then you have hyper-local crews that are working on one specific section, as opposed to having someone that's trying to string all the pipe all at once or string, you know, weld all at once. You're able to really focus on hyper-local workforce, work crews, and, and thus be able to build it in a much more succinct fashion. So, you know, starting to be able to do construction, ideally the first part of 2024, such that, you know, we'll be able to have it restored and, and bring the system online early part of 2025. Okay. So really it's one crop year that they would be out of commission. Correct. And, and really just through the area that's associated with the, the project footprint, which is that 50 foot permanent easement in addition to the, to the 50 to 75 feet that we'll have on a temporary basis. Again, you just got to have the space for equipment to move and, and crews to continue to transfer down the, down the right away. I think the other big concern, at least that I've heard is just the impact long-term of having this pipeline below, obviously well below where crops will be grown or livestock will be grown, but safety and just the impact of will this change 
my ability to grow a crop here? No. And if we do our job right, um, you know, we are held to a standard of, of full restoration of that ground. Now we realize that doesn't happen overnight, right? And that's why, you know, we outline multi-year um, calculation of how we're doing that crop loss. Uh, but, but there are processes in place to restore the ground. Um, that's the benefit of pipelines, really, in comparison to any other mode of transport. You're able to still utilize that ground much like you always have, right? We'll be able to farm over top of it. You can't farm over top of a road. You can't farm over top of a railroad. Um, you know, pipelines allow you to transfer things or transport things in really a safe fashion and still maintain land use, uh, which is, which is, like I said, unlike other means of transportation. So EBT, we're about to head into 2023, but you said construction isn't going to start until 2024. So what needs to happen between now and then? We've got a lot of permitting work that we need to work through. Um, permitting looks very different from state to state. So we've got uh, permits at the state level. We'll be working with counties on road haul agreements and road crossings and drainage district crossings and things like that. Uh, we also have a number of federal permits that we've got to work through with Army Corps and the United States EPA. So there's there's a lot of that technical work that, that will continue to, to move forward. In addition, working with landowners, right? That is a long process. This is 1,300 miles across five states. That's a lot of landowners. That's a lot of tracks. And so, um, and we also recognize that, you know, it, it's as in much things in agriculture, right? Working with farmers, they want to know who you are and why you're doing something long before they want to get into the dollars and cents. And so it's, it's largely relationship focused. Um, we're taking that to heart and we're out there developing those relationships day in and day out. Do you anticipate having to utilize eminent domain? Um, you know, it's unfortunately eminent domain has, has been brought to the forefront of many of these projects and conversations. Um, if you look at, uh, you know, traditional application of eminent domain on broad scale infrastructure, you know, interstate pipelines, it really doesn't have a, a big piece of the pie. Do we think that we may have to utilize it in some areas? Yes, but, but I want to further reiterate that it is absolutely a tool of last resort. Um, and if you, and if you break down the, the kind of concepts and application of eminent domain, just at the basic level, it doesn't save us time, it doesn't save us money, and it doesn't make us any friends. And any business, both in the pipeline space, in the ethanol space, in any business, those are key tenants to being good operators, right? Is efficiency in your resources and generally repeat customers. And so that's what we're striving to, and that's what we're going to continue to hold ourselves to moving forward in a voluntary and collaborative fashion. Yeah, it's unfortunately gotten a lot of negative publicity. I've seen strikes and protests and things of that nature. How are you guys going about to try to keep a more positive PR front? That, that's a really good question. Um, I think recognizing that there is a lot of emotion um, and and not shying away from tough topics, right? Um, anyone that wants to talk about it in the domain, I'm, I'm happy to have those uh, conversations um, and showcase you know, that, that we are being respectful of private property rights, that we, we want this to be a collaborative process. And there's a way to get from start to finish in a manner that that is workable and 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 something that not only we can be proud of as the company and the plants that we're partnering can be proud of but also landowners that are up and along our route right i think if you think back to to there's a lot of pride that, that folks take um especially from a farmer perspective of having a local plant that's successful and prosperous we see this infrastructure as being a uh, an extension of that and and we hope to be able to develop it under that same framework so 2024, construction will start, hopefully finished up by end of 2024, beginning of 2025. What does the actual process of 
getting carbon to and from the storage and all that stuff end result look like? Sure. So so what does this actually look like in practice is, is a great question because a lot of us, carbon is kind of tough to conceptualize, right? Um, but but physically, what this we will absolutely be handling physical carbon. Um, if you think about the nature of ethanol production at its core, it's fermentation, right? You're taking a starch, breaking it down through fermentation and turning it into an alcohol. Fermentation naturally has CO2. Um, and that is right now vented out at the majority of these facilities. We capture or we help our the facilities install equipment that captures the CO2, uh, dehydrates it, so it takes as much of the free water out of it as possible, and then also compresses it. So uh, at that point, that's when it changes from a gas into a liquid, and it'll stay under kind of a high-pressurized state liquid as it moves through the infrastructure. Um, so a number of different kind of end destinations, much like there's a number of on-ramps, there will also be a number of off-ramps for this CO2. Um, we hear a lot about the, the geological sequestration. The region we're looking at the, for that is in central Illinois. Happens to actually be the same geological uh, formation that, that ADM has been utilizing um, at their Decatur ethanol plant for the better part of uh, 10 years now. And so, you know, it's, it's a tried and true area that, that can do this in ethanol. Um, I think the other unique piece of this is we're also looking to develop uh, terminal assets along the infrastructure, right? We, we utilize CO2 as, as a society in a number of different fashions, be it, um, you know, in the ag space, especially in protein manufacturing and processing, food and beverage, and a number of other, you know, dry ice applications. We still want to make sure, and our shippers want to make sure that they can fulfill those contracts. You can do that in a much more efficient and effective and safe manner through pipeline infrastructure. Great. Well, I think that was all of my questions I have for today. It's going to be interesting to watch and continue. We'll definitely have to have you on the podcast again as things start to develop again in 2023. But Elizabeth, thanks for doing this. Absolutely. Thanks for the time. Well, it's always good to catch up with Elizabeth and get the status of their project as we continue to see theirs and others in our news headlines as we continue to report on those. Absolutely, Tanner. Uh, It's interesting, you know, just all the different pieces that are going on right now. And I'm sure farmers have some answers if they're involved directly with the pipeline. But for those of us sitting in on the sidelines, we may not understand the full breadth of what's going on here with this. That's right. Listeners, but you can count on us to continue to get to the bottom of the latest headlines and stories around the agriculture community. So tune in each day with us. We will be back tomorrow, but we will not be here Thursday and Friday. But for today, what do you say, Delaney? Should we let the listeners go? Let's let them go. (laughs) 